Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of out of the blank podcast erica it's a pleasure to have you on the show would you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening thanks so much for having me robbie my name is erica dick i'm a historian of uh, psychedelics and a historian of medicine at the university of saskatchewan in canada how did you get interested in the history of psychedelics i think i was particularly interested in the history of science and i was drawn to these studies of medical experimentation when I was doing research for a, a professor during my master's years. And um, I found this sort of pocket of materials that all of these documents and this, what I thought was a really kind of rich record of psychedelic experimentation that took place in Canada that I, I had never heard of. And it kind of, you know, enchanted me as I was trying to understand who was involved and what their goals were and where psychedelics fit into what I found to be sort of a transformational moment within the history of psychiatry. Is this you and Cameron? I, I did come across you and Cameron, although he wasn't who I was directly um, uh, interested in to begin with. You and Cameron was a psychiatrist at the, at you at, sorry, Allen Memorial hospital in, um, in Montreal and he's become rather kind of infamous in this space for engaging in unethical experiments with psychedelics and a variety of other things. Um, he kind of pioneered this idea of psychic driving. And for that, he received some money from the CIA. So he's been implicated in all sorts of studies around MKUltra and mind control experiments with psychedelics. But he isn't actually who I, of course, I, I encountered that work and he's important to this story. But I was really interested in some folks who were doing research in Saskatchewan who were looking at the way that psychedelics might be used as part of healthcare reforms, but also in sort of rethinking or revising the way we understand psychosis and addiction, and even how we empathize with patients who were living in psychiatric facilities at that time. You and Cameron was the only person I knew from Canada that had um, any work that I've seen, at least in my own um, about psychedelics or anything like that. So I'm curious, could you tell me a little bit more about the group that you found and like what usages and like when it comes to addiction, I went to school for chemical dependency. So that's a, you know, that, the whole program right there is to try and help people get over their addictions. And every time I've heard someone explain their experience on psychedelics, it's like this thing that they do mention it can go bad, but it's been this overall thing that they really can't fathom into words. It's such a profound experience. Like some of them become more spiritual, more with the earth rather than uh, a certain deity or being. And it just had me going like, Hey, if a drug can do that and kind of revolutionize your mind, I mean, what can it do for the area of medicine? Yeah, so the folks that I was looking at in particular were a group that assembled in Saskatchewan, so in the prairies, the Canadian prairies, and um, the guy who coined the term psychedelic, Humphrey Osmond, became quickly the superintendent of the Weyburn, the Saskatchewan Provincial Mental Hospital. He was a British-trained psychiatrist who came in 1951. He was invited to come as part of the healthcare reforms that were unfolding in the province, and this is the province and the moment in Canadian history where we sort of where we get Medicare, our publicly funded healthcare system. And so the work with psychedelics in that context really intersects or dovetails nicely with these healthcare reforms. And one of Osmond's ideas was that psychedelics offered a more cost-effective and a more sort of efficient way of providing some kinds of relief and treatments. And he had a couple of different ways of approaching this. He was also he clustered around him were other researchers, a psychiatrist in Saskatoon named Abram Hoffer, a psychologist in Regina named Duncan Blewett, and a variety of different people came in and out of this, this really quite small place um, that's in the southeastern part of the province. It's kind of off the beaten path, so people really had to make an effort to get there. Um, but one of the things that they did is they wrote a lot of letters, they published a lot, and they got a lot of attention for the work they were doing. And there were essentially two arms of the research at least initially. The first was to use psychedelics like mescaline and LSE, so even before the word psychedelic was coined, to produce a model psychosis. 
And to that end, these psychiatrists were really curious about how it was that people were living in these institutions. And again, throughout North America and much of Western Europe, large scale asylums still predominated throughout the first half of the 20th century. And people were languishing in these places. So as he came in as the superintendent of one of these large sort of Gothic styled asylums, he really was sort of frustrated with the state of things. And he wanted to try to provide some kind of relief and looked for radical solutions. This is the same period of time when a lot of bodily therapies were being used. So you mentioned lobotomy, insulin shock therapy, electroshock therapy, or ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, same thing, tends to be divided across the border and how we call it. Um, but these kind of harsh treatments that have many, in many ways been described as barbaric in hindsight. At the time, though, they were getting a lot of attention within psychiatry. And Osman came through and, and was really interested in hallucinations. What could hallucinations teach us? So one of the things he wanted to do is explore the use of psychedelics. Sorry, I shouldn't say that word again yet. It wasn't yet coined, but explore substances like LSD and mescaline, which comes from peyote cactus, to try to understand from his own perspective what it was like to experience a hallucination. So initially, he wasn't giving these substances to patients as much as he was using them himself and encouraging um, psychiatric nurses and other staff members to have these kinds of experiences so that they could generate a kind of chemically inspired empathy with the patients who he felt were really kind of left to their own devices in these facilities. They'd been cut off from their communities, from their families, and he was trying to sort of bridge that gap. The second piece of their, their research um, was really, and it kind of developed quite uh, really at the same time. Um, they felt that some of the descriptions that people had of these experiences was matching what they found with people going through delirium tremens or experiencing kind of hitting rock bottom in terms of um, addiction. And they were really talking about alcoholism here. Uh, really, addiction didn't deviate into other domains at this moment. What they thought was initially that perhaps by taking LSD in fairly large doses, might simulate the experience of hitting rock bottom and that this would help people to get to the point where they recognize they needed help or appreciate that they could generate some kind of help or they could reach out and see outside of themselves. That hypothesis was quickly abandoned as they realized that people weren't actually having a kind of rock bottom experience, but they were having really insightful experiences nonetheless. So the concept of the rock bottom disappeared in some respects or this kind of idea that people would be frightened into looking for help. But they found, the alcoholics in particular, that they were having these really mystical experiences. They were seeing outside of themselves. They were experiencing something that was quite overwhelming in terms of an emotional reality. And those things led to very good therapeutic outputs or benefits. And so they started to harness that a little bit more and, and tried to refine the experience, playing with doses, playing with the setting. So even before we have the concept of the set and setting, they developed protocols and manuals for adjusting the rooms and the places in which people encounter psychedelics to try to optimize these results, both in terms of reaching a mystical experience, but also in terms of the capacity to integrate the kinds of out-of-worldly experiences. You mentioned before the difficulty in describing those experiences. That was something they felt very acutely when they worked with patients, mostly men, um, about a little over 80% of the patients were men. Um, who came through these, these sort of addiction sessions and found themselves sort of moved to tears, sometimes unable to describe what they experienced, and yet felt that this was the equivalent of something like 10 years of psychotherapy. It was a condensed, intense session that allowed people to see themselves differently and in many cases allowed them to accept that they needed help except that they needed to change something that they seemed unwilling to do before this point. And these were, you know, today's terms, we might say breakthrough moments. Um, that language wasn't really in vogue, uh, but the publications and the two-year follow-up studies and beyond showed really, really dramatic results. Now you put that into the context of a, a region in the world that's trying to invest in publicly funded healthcare. And you think about a single, albeit, long session, maybe six to eight hours, even with another day of integration, they didn't call it integration, but another day of follow-up, it takes some staffing costs. But if you compare that with a lifetime of living in an institution 
or you compare that with the kind of costs that the state was looking to bear out in a publicly funded system, that's a really dramatic, a really efficient way of delivering a kind of healthcare. And so it was really attractive to this region and it drew in other researchers from different places. They started corresponding with researchers in other parts of the world, namely in the United States, but also in other regions. And it became a kind of epicenter or a bit of an ideological magnet, if you will, for thinking broadly about changes in psychiatry, psychology, mental health and, and treatments, but also for integrating that into a healthcare system that saw this kind of efficient way of bringing a cost-effective treatment to people that help them get back into their families, into their communities, and possibly even um, coming back into gainful employment. And that sort of, those goals came together in this moment. When it comes to the availability of these types of like mescaline and these type, well, I'm gonna say psychedelics because I couldn't list off specific of which ones that they used, but is it, but they widely available? Was it easy to be able to keep testing them? I mean, did they have to go through the government? Did they have to go through anything to get a supply of it or were they able to reach out to other sources? So during this period, they began the testing in 1951 and it continued. Humphrey Osmond left. He was briefly back in England where he grew up. And then he was at Princeton for a while and he ended up in Alabama after that. So throughout this period, the, the answer changes. Um, for 10 years, for a sustained 10 years, he was in Saskatchewan. And during that period between 1951 and 1961, gaining access to supplies was not as hard as it as you might think, in part because Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, where Albert Hoffman had worked or was working, uh, who introduced delisergic acid diethylamide in 19, you know, it, that became available. Sandoz made it available and they were able to get that fairly directly. Now, over time, that connection changed. So there was a distribution unit in New Jersey. They could get the supplies through the New Jersey again, sort of through these clean lines, if you will. But there were a number of rival companies that were attempting to create a delysergic acid mimic um, or even to alter it a little bit to create a different patent. Those supplies started coming to the attention of the researchers in Saskatchewan, and some of them did experiment with them as well, largely, you know, not with patients so much. That started to change. So they found that some of those supplies were unstable. They found that some of those supplies were coming at a cost. So Sandoz was providing their supplies for free to these so-called bona fide researchers. And also the Canadian government began to keep tabs, if you pardon the pun, they began to keep a watch over the supplies that were being distributed. So by the latter part of this period and beginning in the 1960s, the um, access to the supplies had to go through protocols and sort of a, an application process that went through the Minister of Health in Canada. The group in Saskatchewan was able to retain access to those supplies and that sort of Sandoz connection until the late 1960s with permission from the federal government of Canada. But at that time, there was a real squeeze on a number of research units were closing their doors. And there were a variety of reasons. One, those protocols became harder to achieve. Two, um, there were there was real concern about supplies leaking outside of the clinic. So people were gaining access to these, students were gaining access to this. And the most sort of notorious examples are some of the American, you know, images of Haight-Ashbury or, you know, folks in San Francisco engaging this. So that image, whether real or not, whether that was a real threat in Canada or not, became part of, you know, the, the pressure to close the doors or change the protocols and change the access to supplies. And the Canadian government was not immune to that. I mean, they certainly responded with concern about whether these supplies were kind of leaking into an underground. And we know also Sandoz did their own studies and found that there were a variety of products being peddled as acid or delysergic acid diethylamide that were not Sandoz approved. And Sandoz became quite nervous about being blamed for a variety of untoward effects um, some of which may well be warranted, but also people were engaging in polydrug use outside of the clinic, mixing LSD or black market acid with amphetamines or alcohol or a variety of things. And Sandoz became nervous about the reputation of its own delisergic acid diethylamide or LSD. So at this time, you could imagine sort of regulatory context shifting very quickly as different groups become concerned about their reputation, but also their supplies. 
Now, when it comes to the groups, though, are those groups like specific other companies that are trying to do the same goal of using a drug to help people in therapies or just give people, a, 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 I would say, a profounding trip or something like that? Or was it more singular based people like certain dealers or certain people that were like, because I know Timothy Leary at one point was just he had this idea of set and setting, which there's goods about him. And I've talked good and bad about Timothy Leary. I think you can kind of learn more of the aspect was he was carelessly giving drugs away to a lot of people without really proper. I mean, set and setting is one thing, but not giving like me and Don talked about if we opened up or if there were clinics that would open up, which is starting to kind of happen. Now you'd have a person that would kind of be with you through this trip. And it would kind of be like, I wouldn't say a spirit guy, but in a sense, like one to help people if they get overwhelmed or just help people walk through it. I think that's a productive way of treatment, but Timothy Leary thought he just got the keys to the birdcage in a sense. And he was giving everybody a key to go open up what that is. And that's not really, that's, you have a little bit more caution with that. But like I said, I've talked to two different perspectives on Timothy Leary, some that talk good and some that talk bad, but I get into this area of there was a market that opened up with individual people that were, you know, gotten to some gangs in a sense as well too, brotherhood of eternal love. And then other aspects where I go, when it comes to these separate organizations, are we talking about government? Or are we talking about companies that are in line with, you know, if there was an ethics that was set place, like here's this rules, or are we just talking about people like, Hey man, try this. Yeah. And I think sort of all of those things are true at the same time. I think certainly by the early 1960s and Leary really comes to the attention of, you know, he's, his name starts to fill into, um, starts to appear in, in headlines and in newspapers in the early to mid 1960s. He loses his job in 1963, for example, from Harvard, and this kind of catapults him into the spotlight. But, you know, I think that a variety of these things are happening simultaneously. So on the one hand, you have the kind of bona fide uh, researchers, and some of them go off the rails as well. But there's some degree of accountability and oversight and regulation that governs their behavior, even if they, you know, behave badly. We might say in the case of Leary, you know, he did lose his job at Harvard for um, engaging in what they described as unethical behavior. And there's lots of different views on what exactly that was, whether that was to do with his his psilocybin research or, or whether that was to do with, you know, not showing up for class or, you know, being unfaithful to his wife. And there's a variety of different things that were happening there as well. Nonetheless, I think what happens when Leary moves into that position and he's not alone, but he becomes this kind of go-to avatar for explaining this part of the story in that he moves away from any of those, um, those sort of counterbalances. So he's not beholden to the rules of Harvard University anymore. He's not um, being overseen by, you know, the National Institutes on Health or something like that. He's now a kind of free agent. And in that space, Leary behaves in a way that I think others did at times as well, but he really becomes a real advocate for psychedelic use in a recreational sense or in a curiosity sense, or even I think at times he describes this as a phase of human evolution, that everyone needs to take these um, psychoactive substances and engage in these experiences to help humanity. And, you know, he pushes things quite far and he's not in a position to be sanctioned by, sorry for all the cat bombing, um, he's not in a position to really heed the advice of, you know, a dean or a, a university administration or something like that. And this creates a bit of a challenge because there are a number of people who are trying to sort of toe the line and keep psychedelics within that space with some institutional oversight. And I think historically, there's a bit of a, a fissure that, that develops here. Now, at the same time, and you mentioned this earlier, there's this Cold War, there's a war in Vietnam, there's a whole bunch of reasons why people are being critical and, and really kind of there's a, a real momentum towards critiquing these institutions writ large. And this, this all gets kind of confusing, I think, in this moment when some psychedelic researchers are trying to reform from within those institutions. Others are saying we need to get rid of those institutions or we need to get rid of this kind of government oversight or this Cold War mind control, even if it's, you know, operating within an American context. I don't mean communist mind control. I mean, institutions, these decision makers don't know what's best for us. We need to make decisions on our own. And you see those eruptions of counterculture moments of people sort of taking to the streets and deciding what's best for themselves. And Leary kind of rides that wave. He becomes a darling of that 
expression, that movement, that idea that, you know, we can change society by getting away from these authoritarian measures of control. And I think psychedelics kind of fall in between these two perspectives. And by the 1970s, Richard Nixon's, you know, makes a clear declaration that psychedelics are bad. They've fallen on the wrong side of history in, in his view. And they've supported these critiques of society that are unwarranted, they're risky, they're irresponsible even, you know, all the way back to, you know, undermining efforts in, in Vietnam. Now we've got 70 years of hindsight, we might um, see that a little bit differently. But I think in the moment, psychedelics sort of sat in this place of, or became the catalyst for thinking differently about our place in society. And, and different people rode different waves on that. I think the researchers who stayed on the institutional side have sometimes been written off in history as being, you know, not as radical or not as um, aggressive in in supporting and um, encouraging the use of psychedelics. But we're seeing some of that replaying today. We've got psychedelic insiders, if you will, who are working, operating within a kind of uh, above ground context. They're playing by the rules. They're going through all the protocols. And at the same time, there's a growing movement, and I'd say that it's always existed, but it's becoming a little bit more vocal now, or maybe more um, mainstream even, of underground practitioners, underground chemists, and others who are suggesting that, like, we can't wait for the medical profession to change its mind on these things. We already know that there, there's evidence, whether it's on Reddit or in Arrowwood's vaults, or, you know, there's lots of evidence from the streets that psychedelics have positive benefits, whether therapeutic or just for curiosity-based human flourishing. And I think that clash is going to come back. I think when we talk about the, I guess, the beginning point, I've always heard of the aspect that Timothy Leary set back psychedelic research by 50-something years, or someone usually says something like that. I agree and I disagree. I think if you look at him in one aspect, I think you have to balance what we know now that wouldn't happen if that you see the psychedelic movement kind of moving forward, especially now today in the past couple of years. But I think it's that hindsight of knowing, I mean, the resistance or counterculture, I, I would say opinion would be the fact that the government controlling this, you know, where is that going to lead? Is it going to be access for all? Is it going to be what it, it, sh it should be intended for people that need help? You should get help. Or if you want to experience something and it's your right to do so, I think you should experience something as well too. I can't take you or slap your hand and tell you not to take something, you know, but then there's this, if you look, especially during like Nixon's era and everything, there was this mentality of you're going to have a doped up society. And there was fear on that. And there was also control in that as well, too, which made it really, really complicated. And that's why people were also forced to go underground. I think that's where I start having like conflicting opinions, because I don't want people to go underground to get their, you know, what they need, especially something like psychedelics that I've heard, it helps so many people, so many friends of mine. But at the same time, I mean, is that better than having government influence in a sense as well too? It's, it's hard with that regulation. Like I said, I know the MK ultra stuff of kind of where it went bad a little bit. So I get into this point of hindsight, how do we correct that from not happening again? I think now the stigma has kind of died down from it, but back then there was plenty of propaganda out there to spew both sides of the argument when it came to how good it was or how bad it was. I mean, Timothy Leary to some people was a hero or he was the biggest villain. And I think, that only gets in an area where you have something like psychedelics in general that is just, you can't, I don't even think now, I mean, we know a lot of research about it, but I couldn't under even begin to fathom it. We could say the chemical compounds and we could say all this, but what it does to somebody, those trips are the funniest and best stories I've ever heard, but there's something that is, you can't really you know, predict who's going to affect what. And then there's that fear aspect as well, too. And I think the best way to do this is in would be the set and setting. Like you mentioned earlier about people kind of having like an earlier template about that set and setting aspect. Did that increase the area of color therapy or any other direction of mood setting? I would say, I mean, not just in a sense of taking drugs, but which ones give people a better feeling, have a more profound effect in the way that direction that their trip can go. I hope everyone's not taking it in a dark tunnel because that would probably produce a very, it might be cool. I don't know. I've never taken acid and I never will. You know, I think you're right. And I think one of the things here is that there's, there's a tension between control 
and, you know, controlling access and controlling supplies and control and perhaps even profiteering from that and support. So if we think about it in a harm reduction sense, I'm much less concerned about, you know, whether it's government or whatever oversight is required. Um, I think that's really important. So public education, harm reduction, you know, I've got little kids. I don't really want them to take psychedelics, but I also don't think that, you know, psychedelics should be just banished from existence and they should be pressed so far, pushed so far underground that people are willing to take risks in order to get them. So there's got to be some kind of balance there. And whether that's a kind of a, a place where the government needs to intervene or whether there's some kind of public transparency or public oversight and how that gets created or, or you know, different jurisdictions will respond to this also in different ways. And we see this a little bit even in the experiments that are taking place right now, and I mean sort of public health experiments, we see decriminalization taking foot in places like Oregon. Uh, Vancouver has started to decriminalize, so we've got some municipal jurisdictions that are saying they're going to turn a blind eye to small possession. That's one form. Um, others that are, you know, retaining a kind of hardline perspective. And if we go to China, for example, you know, even discussions about psychedelics are quite strict and and really it's really quite risky. You get shot for pot in Singapore. I, I mean, the the spectrum of regulation here is quite diverse. And also, I think, you know, being mindful of what does it mean to destigmatize? Does that actually mean that people are going to take this recklessly? And there, there again, I think that we need a bit more balance, that it's neither all free, you know, completely accessible at the local 7-Eleven or wherever it might be, um, or all completely restricted or even prohibited. There's got to be some relationship building that takes place yet. And I guess I, for one, am, I, maybe it's my inherent nature as a historian to sort of look in the rear view mirror as I imagine these things. But I feel like right now there's a kind of urgency with the so-called psychedelic renaissance, this sense that we need to get this done right away. I actually think we need to be a bit cautious. And, you know, I, again, the image of Leary is a useful one. And I agree with you. I don't think he's an either or character. I think it's rather dangerous or, you know, risky to put him in a, like a setback research 50 years or, you know, avatar of different thinking. I, I think he's a complicated figure. And on the one hand, he represented a breaking away from those institutional oversights or those institutional contexts. And on the other hand, he represented something that I think a lot of people were thinking or a lot of people were craving even a desire to either escape or explore or engage in a cultural expression and cultural relationship with psychedelics that I don't think we're over. I don't think, you know, if psychedelics are medicalized, and meaning they're available as one of the menu options through psychiatry or psychology or whatever appropriate, you know, profession, I don't think it means people are going to stop taking them recreationally. And I think that still needs to be sorted out a little bit so that we can move away from the kind of boom bust effect that psychedelics have had historically. Like they might be good medicines. Oh, they're terrible for the cultural uh, critiques of the world. I, I think there's got to be some some middle ground here. And to me, that's a kind of supportive in, environment, one that in, invests in public education or and public health information about the real risks, there are real risks associated with taking psychedelics. And I think in order for people to make informed choices and to have safe supplies, we need to start kind of opening things up and being a bit more transparent about it instead of sort of trading stories about exciting experiences or really bad experiences and using that to guide our thinking on what the sort of public state of psychedelics should be. I think when you make things like medicinal marijuana, like we have clinics like that now that are opened up in like my town and my state and it could be like Oregon where they just legalize everything. And that's a little bit on the no side for me, but I get it. I mean, I'm not going to, like I said, I don't control people's drug use or anything like that. But if you create a medicinal place like marijuana for someone to go buy medically grade or whatever they want, there's still going to be. I guess people that are going to sell it on their own, that's not going to be more medical. They might cite, say it's medical. It's never medical, 
but then those people that don't want to sort it out from a medical establishment can get it from there, but that's their inherent risk or choice that they make on those aspects. But the whole point is the conversation is happening. Marijuana in the past three years has become this thing in my town where it's like, nobody bats an eye. Oh, you do. I got a medical card. Everyone says that. I don't, I don't like pot. I don't like any of those things. I've done them, had horrible trips. Let me tell you something. I could tell you some bad stories, but I think it's all per person. Like, I'm not going to stop anybody's progress or any direction of going away. Actually, I want to kind of help you get whatever you need. I believe you should be able to take if you want to take it. It's just having that option. But I feel like the counterculture um, idea sees it as like they're taking away this ability to. And I can get that because I think, I mean, how many, if we got psychedelics that were more medical, I mean, would we have people that were able to get it through their insurance as easy or would it be like a specific thing like i haven't been to a chiropractor because my medical insurance doesn't cover it so it's like is that going to be an option available what happens if we have someone like severe schizophrenia a drug that is really scary especially i couldn't even imagine what the people experience but if that can help them, then that's something that should be at the forefront of a lot of things as well, too. That's why when you were seeing these people's research in the beginning, did they write down any of their trips? Did they write down what they were experiencing? I think it's very smart to want to experience it yourself before you administer it on somebody. That's not something that at least I can name a couple people in the MK Ultra project that weren't doing things of that sort. They did take it or they lied about taking it, but they, it wasn't, let me test it on me first. It was more like, let me give it to this person and see what happens. Yeah, you know, there's a really, I think there was a really important um, methodological divide that existed in the 1950s, especially around pharmaceutical research. So the folks that I was studying definitely felt that it was ethically their, their ethical responsibility to try these substances themselves first before they could give it to anybody else. And that kind of follows an older tradition within medicine of trying things first, um, and certainly an older tradition within psychoanalysis where one goes through therapy and analysis before they're able to provide analysis. But at the same time, um, by the early 1950s, uh, the market was becoming flooded. Well, the, the first sort of blockbuster pharmaceuticals were coming in in the 1950s. And by the end of that decade, there were more psychopharmaceuticals available than ever before in human history. And the way that those were being tested was increasingly through statistical analysis. So here we have the controlled trial, the blind trial, and we get to the gold standard of the randomized controlled trial. Now, that methodology by design is meant to distance the researcher from the subject and taking a drug yourself would completely compromise that entire ethic or that entire methodology. And so I think, you know, there are, there are a couple of different things going on here. Scientific methodology was changing in this space um, such that taking drugs themselves put researchers in a compromised position when it came to that kind of institutional logic and institutional oversight. And a number of people fought back, back against that, arguing on scientific grounds or on therapeutic grounds more, more specifically, that this was unethical. That like leaving someone in a room for their LSD experience was actually harmful. And that this was going to you know, bring about, they use a variety of different language, you know, bad effects, poor trips, all sorts of traumatic things. Whereas having an empathetic therapist present and not someone who was necessarily taking one of these substances, it was LSD, mescaline, and later psilocybin were the three that the researchers I'm studying looked at or, or took themselves. It wasn't that sometimes they took them at the same time. They did do some experiments in that way. And they did group settings where they thought it, maybe everybody needed to be sort of tripping at the same time. But more often than not, these were, you know, they took them a couple of times, some more than others, um, and had that empathetic experience, which they could draw from in these moments. And that, that kind of bedded down as the more consistent application that was used for the next say, decade, um, give or take. And those protocols were transferred or transmitted to a variety of other institutions in the United States and Canada, uh, where they were trying to incorporate that set of that idea to optimize the therapeutic benefits. But again, both the kind of scientific methodology of the time starts chipping away at that approach, putting these guys in a bit of a corner. And unfortunately, most of them were guys. 
Um, but you know, they're they're sort of sidelined or marginalized within their scientific and clinical context at the same time that the reputation for psychedelics is growing with the likes of people like Leary. Many of the researchers I studied, and they all met Leary. I met Leary when I started doing this research as well. Really? Sorry, I should say prior to when I started doing this research. And uh, what was he like? You got to tell me. <laughs> I'll tell you after. <laughs> okay. um, you know that I think initially they they were a little more open to his thinking and his way of being, but over time they became concerned that he was quite reckless, and um, and they pleaded with him to sort of dial down his antics or to be a little bit more reflective and to consider the consequences of, you know, the kind of mainstreaming that he was doing. Now, we didn't have, you know, Netflix documentaries at that time or something like this, um, but he was in the news. He was at these concerts. He was, you know, speaking to these large gatherings of people who were taking psychedelics, not for therapeutic purposes, but for really sort of recreational. And, and you know, they may have their own designs or their own purposes for taking them, but this wasn't done in a clinical context. And um, I think they started pleading with them to be a bit more mindful of the effects that this might have on the, the fate of psychedelics more broadly. And he did not heed those concerns and continued on to his dying day, proselytizing the good use of psychedelics or the sort of benefits of psychedelics um, outside of a clinical context. Were there more pros in psilocybin or mescaline like which how did they know which one had the most benefits to offer or which direction they should go in first or were they trying all three of the drugs all at the same time and kind of working slowly on each one i would figure you would choose the best of the group i think some of it came down to supplies um what they had access to and what they had stable supplies of so lsd was one of the ones that had really they had good supplies they were able to get stable supplies consistent supplies they were able to measure it very accurately um eating peyote buttons uh you know is much more variable uh the supplies they found um degraded and so they had much more variability with those when they were using synthetic mescaline um, they could monitor those supplies more easily, but they found that the experiences were really quite hard on people in the sense that, uh, you know, mescaline can, or does cause people to, to throw up. It can be quite a sort of heavy uh, physical experience as well. Um, they found they needed larger doses and those supplies were harder to gain consistent access to. So mescaline sort of tapers off, but for a while they were trying, they started with mescaline and they were trying LSD with kind of a mescaline chaser, if you will. So about an hour into the experience, sometimes people would have a little, um, like five milligrams of mescaline as well. And they were mon monitoring these. You asked earlier whether they wrote down their experiences. There are hundreds of pages of sort of trip reports, both from the investigator side of things, but also from people monitoring uh, those going through the exam. So let me give you an example. If you um, were a volunteer subject in one of these trials, uh, you would be asked to fill out a questionnaire. They would do a physical examination on you, first of all, you know, check your blood pressure, do all those sorts of things. Um, they would ask you about your family history, your health history. Some people were screened out of these. Uh, they were worried that people with a history of schizophrenia, um, might, this might antagonize an existing organic psychosis and people with schizophrenia were typically screened out. There are examples of exceptions, but um, for the most part. And then you were asked to fill out a, a questionnaire and the questionnaire was a 12 questions that prompted you to talk about your biography, your autobiography, if you will. Some people answered in you know single sentences, and I think the longest report we've got is like 80 pages, a typed set of you know answers. So there's quite a lot of variability in how people responded to these questions. You know, where were you born? Do you know who your parents are? Have sort of really open-ended questions, and so people took it what what they wanted. During the experience itself, um, people were encouraged to read people at the trials that I was looking at in Saskatchewan and British Columbia were encouraged to read the doors of perception before going through the experience. I don't think they all did. So this is Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception, and he actually got his masculine from the guy in Saskatchewan who took it to him. And um, this was to prepare people for just opening their minds to the possibility of things that might happen. It wasn't to be choreographed and to give people a script for what might happen, but just to be prepared for the unexpected. 
there was usually um, a nurse, but sometimes it was a psych psychotherapist. There, there was somebody present at all times. They weren't described as guides until a little bit later. And they wrote down what happened. So, you know, subject or patient uh, drank some coffee at 9.05. You know, the, so it shows the dose and then, you know, asked to change the music or looked out the window. So these kinds of descriptions of what's going on. And the day after the experience, um, patients or subjects, so I say subjects because some of them were not being treated. They were there to sort of gather information about sort of normal experiences or normal reactions. And what happened then is um, people were asked to write down what they thought about the experience. What was meaningful? What was happening? What did you experience? Many people refer back to that early questionnaire. Well, they'll say, you know, when I wrote that, you know, I... I never liked my father. I, you know, maybe it's something like that. Then the next time, the next day when they write about this, they say, you know, when I wrote that, I realized that I never really knew my father or I never really loved my father. And here, and so there's this kind of um, digesting of material that comes up that often refers back to that early questionnaire, even though they're quite separate in many respects. So the process is really quite detailed and there's a lot of material to go through. It's very anecdotal though. Um, as a historian and not a biostatistician, you know, I haven't been able to make sense of anything quantitative. And, you know, I've worked with others as well to try to do this. But this is a very sort of qualitative set of experiences. And they're very rich. Some, like I say, don't give a lot of detail. Others give a lot. Um, but the stories are very unique. You know, they're very um, tailored to the individuals who come through that experience and who seek out those experiences. I should say also that in the cases that I've looked through, which is about a thousand now, um, the people who come through are all on some respects uh, volunteers. Nobody was mandated to come through this therapy. Every one of these particular trials had a consent form. Now, whether we can debate whether that's informed consent, because how can you give informed consent to something that you can't really imagine? And that's where the reading doors of perception or talking to an experienced and by that, I mean a therapist who's gone through this experience themselves. They tried, but I don't think informed consent, we, we may not meet the needs or the sort of protocols we have for today. But there were, I think, earnest efforts to give people some insight into what might happen. These are pretty clean trials in some respects. They're very different from the sort that we learn about through the MKUltra work, for I was example. Say, they wrote it down. Of course, the good documents or the documents that we have on it, of course, they're going to be good. I mean, MKUltra was dirty and plus they destroyed the documents. So you don't know what exactly. That's how you know. That's my fear is the bad part. I think most of the trials or most of the research was probably very good. Um, I just there's that one that that I've looked into more. And that's one that we don't have documentation on, really. I mean, I have intelligence hearings, but. I mean, overall, I think like, I don't know if you know who Ron White is. Um, okay. He's a famous comedian, but he's, I mean, anytime you look up any of his comedy performances, he's always drinking whiskey. He had a really bad alcohol thing, but he went to an ayahuasca retreat and um, he explained the whole trip and not really the whole trip, but just the whole journey there hammocks in the backyard. You were in a room with like another person It's this whole, like, I guess, rehab place. He went for like two weeks. It was like $20,000. Um, but he stopped drinking and this has been a guy who's in, since he's 15 years old, you know, his whole attitude and whole persona was with the whiskey. He always, or scotch, he, tequila, tequila, that's what it is. He made his own tequila company. Um, but that's his whole thing. And then now he's done and everyone's like, are you not going to be the same guy that we care about? And he was like, do you personify? You only like me because I drink this on stage and well we like it because your jokes and they did still like him after he stopped drinking which i think was interesting because like hearing someone explain this whole experience especially someone that's been known for that and that's a heavy alcoholism is such a difficult one to get over but that helped him in a matter of two weeks and that was a problem that his doctor told him if he didn't stop he wasn't going to live any like long like another year or so he got his health back on shape and everything that's the interesting stuff where you start going okay research needs to be put into this and people need to be put in a situation where they can experience these as well too and i think that only comes from obviously learning and trying it out i think this is an area now especially in the 2020s that seems like the more conversations are becoming more normalized. You know, someone said, I have a friend that comes in and said they did, you know, they took acid or something. I'm not going to yell at them about it, but it's just, 
it's not like foreign to me as it would have been maybe 10 years ago or something like that if somebody would have told me i mean there are movies out there that really kind of either set it back in a sense or might have popularized it to become more normal i know that's with pot like pineapple express is a good example but there's plenty of other movies out there that really don't do the justice of the drug they just kind of make it seem like this thing as soon as you take it you're going to see a giant octopus or something like that which i don't think is necessarily doing it a really good service yeah i mean i think to me that's part of like it even comes back to the leary idea that whether or not um psychedelics move into a medical context people are going to form their own opinions about it and a lot of those opinions are going to come from things that are not you know this is not um randomized control research pineapple express did not have to meet certain criteria for truth nor do any of the like film and movie industries but people find out about things in that space too and then how do you you know controlling that um becomes a bit of a challenge right so i think to me at least you know investing in more education so people can make good choices about whether or not Seth Rogen is a reliable source for, you know, helping us to appreciate, you know, which drugs we should try or whether we all have to read PubMed and do a careful analysis and maybe even learn a different vocabulary for understanding a kind of risk benefit analysis and finding our profile within some of those scientific reports, which is, I think, really difficult. Perhaps it's easier and with, with all due respect to Seth Rogen, you know, like, Maybe maybe he's the guy that we identify more as he's on stage than, you know, reading through a bunch of statistical literature and finding like, okay, what are the contraindications here? I think I'm on this side. Trying to figure out where we fit is, you know, there's so much information available to us in this digital age. And, you know, you can you can identify with chat rooms and social media. You can find all sorts of different ways that people are seeking out information about what they think might be good for them, appropriate for them, both in a kind of therapeutic or even quasi-therapeutic context. So maybe I want to self-medicate. Um, and also, you know, what happens if I just want to go to a festival? Um, is it okay? And, it, you know, so I think people are making choices about this in the wild, you know, without a kind of clear indication from any kind of authority source. Uh, like, again, it might be Netflix, it might be Mad Men, you know, there's a psychedelic scene there too. Um, but with, in the absence of a formal conversation about this and good, sustained, dynamic conversation about this, I think uh, we're kind of left to our own devices. And that's where I think things are actually quite tricky, both in terms of, you know, um, when people come in, if, if somebody has a bad reaction, what do you tell the first responder? What do you tell the person in the emergency room that you've taken? And there are legal consequences to admitting that you've taken certain substances that can actually um, compromise your medical outcomes or compromise the kinds of services available to you. And you mentioned insurance. I mean, I'm in Canada, we have a different system, um, but the consequences, the, the, the financial implications of psychedelic research are also really clear here too. I mean, right now, psychedelic treatment centers, even the legal ones, are only approved in private spaces. And it still costs money to, and, and in some cases, quite a lot of money. So I think all of this is kind of operating in this gray zone right now. And without some more clear communication, I think it'll continue to be in that space. And with that, I think comes a lot of risk. Does it have more inherent growth for behavioral or physical ailments that, is some, that someone faces? I've heard someone explain about back pain before and taking it for back pain. I've also heard my uncle always mention, I don't know if this is true. I don't think it is, but he mentions every time he gets, he cracks his back, he gets an acid flashback. I don't, I don't know what that means, but I'm, I'm guessing that's a joke, but it had me just curious because I'm no the work with schizophrenia, I know the work with PTSD in some aspects, and I know other diseases as well too. But when it comes to physical ailments, I mean, there's a large amount of people out there that are getting hooked to opioids because of back pain. And you know, that back pain, it might go away, but are they paying attention to that? Or they don't want the fear of it coming back. So they keep taking another. And you know, we do have this at least now in the States is getting more attention. I've been talking about it. And finally, someone actually did an article about it and put it on the news, which was um, the opioid crisis that's happening. I mean, over, I think it's the ages of 19 to 39 or 49, um, over almost 100,000 deaths in a matter of like two years. And that's a lot of 
people. And it's just like, we can find an alternative route. And that's where this discussion of psychedelics is starting to be more talked about as well, too. I think, I mean, this is another one of those contextual moments that for me as a historian, this is a really rich conversation. I mean, if we imagine, you know, psychedelics coming in in the 1950s, and you think about the kind of, even the stereotypical context there, you've got, you know, changes in psychiatry from people mostly living out their lives in institutions for major mental illnesses, the rise of a psychopharmaceutical industry, we get big pharma really emerging at that time as a, as a tremendous force in our healthcare system. Um, and, and there's a cold war going on. There's a lot of existential angst over nuclear war, about destruction. And, and I think all of that, you know, created this this sort of malaise where, you know, psychedelics were this little glimmer of hope in some corners, both in terms of psychiatry, but also in this cultural context of like people seeking a kind of existential escape from the malaise that was produced by this cluster of effects. I think something similar is happening today on a cultural level. You know, there's this pandemic thing, you know, there's another war, wars, um, climate disaster, you know, there's all sorts of things that are creating a kind of existential angst that I think creates moments where it's difficult to imagine how individual actions can produce dramatic benefits, right? Um, we need some kind of collective action, you know, me turning off my lights at night is not going to fix the climate control, we need sort of big um, collective action here. And I think it produces a sense of isolation that has now been compounded by living through a pandemic. Um, and that, that I think pushes people to seek something outside the box. And here again, psychedelics emerge. They're not new. They've been around for millennia. Um, but they create this kind of, um, symbol of hope for some, uh, symbol of change. And to me, psychedelics are really interesting, but they're not really the key thing. I think psychedelics are a means or thinking intellectually investing in thinking with psychedelics. I don't mean taking them and thinking with psychedelics. I mean, imagining what do they represent to different groups of people? Um, that to me is the biggest change maker or that's the most radical sort of um, change available is when people start investing in the idea that psychedelics having access to psychedelics can change the way we think about trauma, um, both on an individual level, but also on this larger sense. So maybe you don't want to take psychedelics, but having access to them for others, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it changes how we start imagining our own inter individual interactions with healthcare providers or what counts as health. Does spiritual health get included in our framework for thinking about health? Is that something we can get insurance for? Do we, you know, revive indigenous uh, cosmologies as a way of trying to understand and interpret what's happening when we take a psychedelic plant, for example. All of those things that I think are implicated by thinking with psychedelics kind of change the way that we might imagine how are we going to survive this otherwise kind of grim moment in human history. What's your viewpoint on psychedelics as a just when I when I say that word, what do you like if, if someone said that word to me, what I picture is just a tool that works more effectively and more advanced than things that we have right now to help somebody deal with trauma. I mean, five years with a therapist could help or you could just take this and that could make it better in just one trip. Or you talk about other examples would be, oh, God, I'm blanking. I had, I had, I had a train of thought. I lost it. But I think when I say it, I look at it like a tool. I mean, I can't explain why, you know, uh, the guy who invented Apple, how was he able to think of that on an acid trip, whatever he took for it. Um, Kerry Mullis, the guy who invented the PCR test thought of that on that as well, too. Ideas of AI thought of with acid. So I can't explain what that does to our consciousness or, but it fixes areas where we do not have the technology to do it at a quick pace. Um, schizophrenia is still a problem that we have no cure for. Um, psychedelics can help. It's not saying it's going to cure it, but it might be a faster track in a lot of sense as well, too. So I, I kind of think of it as a tool. I just think it's better than some of the stuff we have to treat certain ailments, but I also think it's an individual case basis. I mean, what works for you might not work for me. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. And I think that's where I I think that investing uh, like, again, a kind of intellectual investment, doing more research with psychedelics is probably a good thing, regardless of whether or not, you know, it reaches a final sort of clear conclusion, like, 
we're going to use it for this particular indication and everything else is going to be prohibited. I, I don't have a kind of like a dream scenario where psychedelics are used for anxiety and nothing else or, or whatever it might be. Um, but I do think that there are too many examples from the past, like, you know, you referenced Carrie Mullis and Steve Jobs and lots of others who, you know, have these kind of eureka moments where they they claim that their life was fundamentally changed or they were deeply inspired or they saw something differently that has now been what we might consider, I don't know if we consider Apple to be a gift to humanity, but, you know, like a fairly important technological innovation. And we, um, there are a variety of these kinds of moments, these like flashpoints or breakthrough moments, and sometimes they get connected with psychedelics. I don't think that means that if everybody had access to LSD in the 70s, we'd all be Steve Jobs. Um, but ruling those out, prohibiting psychedelics, um, I think is probably a blunt instrument to use as well. And so figuring out that more, I think a more nuanced approach to psychedelics. So imagine like, how could they be regulated in such a way that people can have safe access and supported access so you're not in a dark room by yourself? Um, I agree. I think that sounds terrible. But, you know, this isn't putting LSD in the water supplies, which was one of the claims that someone was going to do that in the past. Um, you know, that, and it's not sort of enforcing, shifting a paradigm. So no, we're no longer going to provide you with your SSRIs or whatever other kind of mental health services you might find useful. The only option now is psychedelics. I mean, of course, that would be swinging the pendulum too far on the other side. I think integrating them into a system could be beneficial, but there are also risks if psychedelics are treated like any other pharmaceutical. I also think that there's a risk that they will not actually have the kind of potential for use or for benefits rather uh, that they might, because I think that psychedelics actually operate very differently from a daily use pharmaceutical context, which is what we've been sort of raised on for the last 50 or 70 years. So that does have to come with some also bigger, broader changes, reforms in our healthcare thinking, whether that's, you know, the insurance model or, you know, who gets to take psychedelics in order to deliver them, should therapists take them. That would require big changes in our ethical framework right now in our colleges of medicine and in our oversight sort of machinery. But I think that could be a good thing. I think it be it might be time to sort of shake up some of those ways of thinking about how we measure risk and how we consume science even like where do we go to to figure out whether something is safe or not i think it's okay to shake that stuff up but i think again to do it in a balanced cautious way not to just like throw everything else out and now accept psychedelics are going to be the magic bullet that's going to save everything when i went to school for chemical dependency i eventually switched over to psychology but the dsm-5 criteria and you have to go to a lot of these addiction meetings and things of that sort and i met plenty of counselors on it the most effective ones didn't necessarily follow the rules that were listed out there they kind of adapted it per person and kind of which i think you know i agree with 100 percent um it's not I, just some of the old models of things they necessarily don't work today i can't explain if that's just outdated equipment or just that society's moving a little bit too fast um in a sense that people five years ago are different than people five years now you know what i mean like me a year ago is different completely from where i'm at right now um i'm just curious through all this research and all this work that you've done in this field do you feel like you have a deeper enrichment into psychedelics in general like i mean does it still give you that same curiosity or that same kind of shock and awe um as it did maybe when you started yeah, I mean, I think when I started doing this research, it was the early 2000s and the conversation around psychedelics was so different then. Um, you know, I was very fortunate in that I was able to to meet with and to interview some of these early players, people like Humphrey Osmond, as I mentioned, um, some of the members of the Huxley family, you know, cool sort of pioneers in some respects of this research. But um but, you know, a lot of the conversations we had, not just with them, but with others around them, were, were very cautious, very sort of secretive at some points, you know, that they didn't, some people didn't want their kids to know that they'd been involved in some of this research because it had such a strong stigma attached to it. That conversation has changed a lot. So it has allowed me to ask different questions, seek out different sources. I mean, like historical sources here. 
um, people are willing to share stories in different ways. And that's kind of revived or sort of maintained even my enthusiasm for this research. And as I watch the sort of the way that stories are harnessed to tell, you know, to interpret the history of psychedelics, you know, the history is changing remarkably because there are different voices being added into this context that are, again, altering, you know, what was actually at stake in some of these moments. So, yeah, I, I think it's really exciting. Um, and my excitement is is really, you know, I'm a humanities-based researcher. I'm really interested in the sort of cultural embrace or the cultural momentum that we see right now that seems so, uh, when I finished my PhD in 2005, I couldn't have anticipated this, even though some of the researchers from the 50s who I interviewed said, you know, mark my words, this thing is coming back. And I was like, hmm, that's a nice 80-year-old, 90-year-old person who, you know, is telling me about their legacy. And it's lovely. And, you know, and maybe, and I was wrong, um, or I was naive not to sort of take those words and or understand where they were coming from. And, and you know, I don't know what they actually think or what they would think today. But but it's interesting to see that that conversation moving and that I think keeps me keeps me going. Well, I just got one last question for you. Can you please explain to me your beating of timothy leary i gotta know who this guy is <laughs> well it's kind of embarrassing um for me because um you don't have to share it on air if you want <laughs> well um i was a teenager like i think i was maybe 19 maybe i was 20 um and timothy leary was this was close to to when he died uh so within i think 18 months before he died and for anyone who's read you know um some of the Leary biographies, you learn that, you know, over the course of his time, he was sort of trying to regain some, um, some social capital, I guess. And you know, he'd been in prison for a while, he'd gone through lots of different things, his reputation had been dragged through the mud or revered, you know, depending on who you look at. And, um, you know, he was on this lecture tour in the 1990s. And that was when I was working as a student uh, manager at a movie theater. It was a movie theater, lecture theater at, on campus. And he came by and was giving a talk at the University of Saskatchewan. And, you know, I didn't know who this guy was. I was, you know, hanging out, doing what you do in the 1990s, which was not talk about LSD, uh, you know, smoke some pot, maybe drank some beer, you know, snuck some into the movie theater if we were really bad. Um, but my job that day was to meet this speaker. It's a university campus. Lots of people come and speak on our stage. You know, it wasn't that bizarre. Show him the microphone, make sure he got some water. He wanted popcorn. Great. I put butter on his popcorn. I showed him to the stage, helped him get his microphone set up. And uh, I sat in the back in the projection booth. There was no projection, but, um, and listened to his talk. And I had no idea what he was talking about or why the place was packed. And um, he thanked the people of Saskatchewan in the opening part of his talk and then had this kind of light show and talked about going out of your mind. And to me, it was kind of mumbo jumbo. Like I really didn't make sense of it. And and I, you know, I, I wish that I could go back into that moment <laughs> knowing what I know today. Um, but it was years, it was about a year later when he died. And um I read about his death that I learned a little bit more about who he was and paid a little bit more attention. And then of course, kicked myself forever after because I spent, you know, much of my academic career now has been spent looking at the history of psychedelics. And here I had this opportunity to chat with this, this guy. And what I did is gave him butter for his popcorn. And uh, he he was dazzling. He was incredibly charming. He had this like, as uh, Osmond describes, this cosmic smile. And I can vouch for that having, you know, briefly encountered him. Um, he was charming. He was witty. He captivated everyone's attention, including my own. Like I was one-on-one -on -one with him getting his microphone set up. And he was just incredibly charming um with a twinkle in his eye and uh, i'm glad i had that experience even if i was super naive and didn't know what i was getting at what's what's embarrassing about that oh just how naive i was oh. i didn't know who he was <laughs> i'll say that's an interesting story i i think he sounded like he's got it all like kind of figured out in his head at least in his own mind he kind of had some of the people that you know i've met through doing the show talked about psychedelics or something you can tell which people said you know they had a profound trip and they kind of acted like they got everything and their whole plates clean but you can kind of sense that it's not 100 percent true then there's just people that just flow through 
life in such a sense, like water, where it's just like, I don't, nothing can get them down in a sense, or they just feel like everything that they do is just a hundred percent perfect. Or like, it's like the Fonz. I mean, everything just like goes through and it's just like, what's going on. And it's like, I just think, cause they're out of this a little bit, you know, sometimes it's okay to be stuck up in your own head, but yeah, I have ADHD and that's constantly where I'm at. And it's not a great you know, time doing that. You don't get any sleep, but I think when you're able to like be in the moment of things a lot, like, you know, people talk about sometimes, I just think it opens up another doorway to where it seems like it's happiness, I guess, or it's just not really struggling through what I think is a giant push again for psychedelics, this area of discovering oneself. I mean, the existential crisis is a big factor today. Kids my age, younger, anxiety ridden basically because of this idea of who are we? And I think that comes from not only talking, but understanding our history as well, too. A lot of history is a, uh, it's, it's an interesting subject. I, mean, I see why you're a historian. Um, but it's, that's the fascinating stuff is when I start diving into the actual topics, I find out more about it than what was written down or what I was taught in elementary school or high school. And you realize, okay, there's not that much of a disconnect from back then in some ways. Yes. But in, in a key aspect of just being a human, you're still there. I mean, we still have our same egos at times. We have our same personalities. We have our same mistakes. And I think you can learn from all that as well too, but it's about knowing it. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I said a lot. I ranted. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Erica, where can people find your links? I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got a website that is uh, that includes some of the research that I'm doing. And sometimes we post new projects on there and uh, I can send that to you um, in the email if that's easiest. Yes. And I will link your books as well, too, in the description and any other links I can find on you. I'll make sure I link in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.